When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to Aboriginal elders, past and present. This podcast contains references to suicide and sexual assault and descriptions of fatal violence. Listener discretion is advised. It's just before 10 in the morning on Tuesday the 17th of April 1917 and Katoomba Courthouse is standing room only. The reporter for the Blue Mountain Echo newspaper dutifully noting that people are packed like sardines. In addition to this local journalist, there are seven other city and country newspaper men. Fair enough, because as the Echo's man writes, quote, Never in the history of Katoomba has such interest been taken in a crime. The crime, of course, is the murder of George King, a middle-aged businessman from Melbourne who was done to death two weeks ago while a guest at the popular California boarding house. The 19-year-old youth accused of caving in the victim's head with a hammer is fellow lodger Keith Shaw of Sydney. He was staying at the California with his twin brother Lionel, who's now formally charged with knowing of the murderous assault but assisting Keith anyway. That these brothers, who are all but identical, were seen out and about a lot in Katoomba in the weeks before the murder has increased the public's interest in seeing them now in court. They're so boyish looking, curly red hair, blue eyes in pale freckled faces, slight and small, and this very boyishness makes the savagery of their crime all the more shocking. At 10 o'clock, Keith and Lionel Shaw are led into court, where the coroner, Mr Judges, will hear the evidence and decide if it's sufficient for them to stand trial. The lads look happy and healthy. They've each put on a few pounds while on remand in Parramatta Jail these past two weeks. 
As the court crowd stares, the Shaws don't show that they feel the seriousness of their situation. Instead, Keith and Lionel offer big smiles and friendly nods, especially to a few fair maidens who've come to see them. Settling into their seats, the Shaw brothers will keep up the bonhomie by chuckling and conversing in cheerful whispers even as the most dreadful evidence is being heard. The conclusion's inescapable. To Keith and Lionel Shaw, the senseless murder of George King is just some sort of sick joke. I'm Michael Adams and this is part two of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode Bloody Murder in the Blue Mountains. Part 3 will be out soon, but you can hear the final instalment right now ad-free if you're a Patreon supporter or if you subscribe to Forgotten Australia Plus via Apple. Supporting or subscribing will set you back about 20 cents a day, and it helps me get access to the research materials I need to make this show. As a thank you, you'll get early ad-free access to every episode and also exclusive bonus shows. If you're an Apple user, you can actually try Forgotten Australia Plus for three days with a free trial. Apple and Patreon links are in your show notes. Just a reminder, the first book club episode featuring Peter Doyle and his book Suburban Noir is coming up. I've extended the deadline for questions, so get them in by the 8th of May. If you'd like to record a question, you can do so via speakpipe.com forward slash Forgotten Australia or you can drop me an email at ForgottenAustraliaPodcast at gmail.com. There's more information about the book club episode in your show notes. Keith and Lionel Shaw were represented in Katoomba Court on the 17th of April by well-known Sydney solicitor Mr H.E. McIntosh. The proceedings began with John King's deposition identifying his dead brother being read into evidence. A police photographer tended pictures of the California and of the crime scene, and these were identified by the guest house's manager, Arthur Anderson. Mr. Anderson told of guest Susan Alexander alerting him to the overnight disturbance in Mr. King's room. He explained how he called out to Mr. King, tried the locked door, and then went into the backyard and climbed a ladder to the room's open window. There, he found the deceased terribly injured. Mr. Anderson had called the police and the doctor. He told the court of his immediate suspicions of Keith Shaw, due to how the lad looked and behaved, and what he'd said about knowing a lot about what had happened in the room. But Keith had left the California before the police arrived. Mr. Anderson told the coroner that prior to that morning, he'd had no trouble from Keith or Lionel. They'd been courteous, kind, sober, well-behaved, and had made themselves well-liked by everyone. While Mr. Anderson was making his deposition, the Blue Mountain Echo reporter noted, quote, The twins chatted and laughed repeatedly, especially at the passages referring to their good behaviour. A Katoomba constable told of taking Keith and Lionel's revolvers into custody. The court also heard of the recovery of the hammer used as the murder weapon, the recovery of the diamond ring and the money case stolen from the victim, and the discovery of Keith's bloody clothes in their room in Lionel's bag. When the dead man's bloodstained pyjamas were produced in evidence, a ripple of excitement went through the crowd. The coroner, Mr. Judges, was angry, telling the court, Why all this tittering among the women? There is too much levity altogether introduced into this horror. This horror was described in detail by Dr. Alexander Allen. 
George King, he said, had suffered at least 10 separate wounds to his face and his head. Any one of them might have been fatal. Five of the blows to the top of his head had been penetrating injuries, fracturing the man's skull and exposing brain matter. California guest William Hollingworth, who'd been in Katoomba on holiday from his job with the Queensland Lands Department, testified about hearing screams and other noises around 3.15. Hearing footsteps out in the corridor, he'd thrown open his door and shouted, What's your game? But there'd been no one there. Then he'd heard a door lock, though he couldn't tell which room it had been. Around 6am, Mr Hollingworth continued, he'd seen Keith. Despite everything that had just unfolded, the lad had asked him if he'd like to go for a walk to Echo Point. Mr Hollingworth had told him no, because he was due to go on a tour to Janolan Caves. Keith and Lionel laughed and whispered as Mr Hollingworth gave his evidence. Widow Susan Alexander, who'd been at the California with her young daughters, told the court of hearing noises in Mr King's room next door. It was like someone had moved a bed, and then she'd heard someone jump from the window. Looking out her window, she'd seen the tied blankets hanging down from Mr King's window. Mrs Alexander told of talking to Lionel about the disturbance, and as she was doing so, seeing Keith come back into their veranda room. The lad had said he'd been out walking at Echo Point. Motor tour car operator Eric Cropley told the court that Keith had that morning hired him because he wanted to be driven to Sydney. The accused had said he needed to get there urgently because his mother was sick. But he wanted Mr Cropley to try to avoid going by Katoomba Railway Station. He said he was worried he'd be seen by his brother, who'd be angry with him for spending so much money that Clearly, this ruse had been so he could avoid being spotted by the police. And of course, it could now be seen as evidence of a guilty mind. Not that Keith had otherwise acted suspiciously, though. Mr Cropley told the court that the lad had hired him previously for tours around town. Keith had seemed the same as he'd been on those occasions. That is, cheerful and not nervous. They chatted about this and that until Mr Cropley had dropped his customer at Summer Hill. Keith had paid the fare and gone on his way. It was only shortly afterwards that Mr Cropley had learned of what had happened back at Katoomba. That was when he contacted the police. The inquest heard from Sydney Detective Sergeant Joseph Devlin, who deposed that he and colleague Detective Constable PJ Downey had arrested the accused after he entered his parents' house in Cambridge Street in Paddington. The detectives had taken him to Sydney headquarters. Keith had told them his story during his arrest, during his interrogation, and then in a voluntary, signed, handwritten statement. Keith said he'd come to the California three weeks ago and stayed with Lionel since in the veranda room. He'd bought a hammer at Katoomba Department Store Mullaney's on the Saturday just past. Keith needed it because he'd noticed Mr King's diamond ring that very day and had quickly become completely obsessed with owning it. At this time, just like Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot and Jimmy Banks's Ginger Megs were yet to become popular favourites, so too J.A.R. Tolkien was then just a soldier recovering from trench fever and still 20 years away from introducing Gollum to the world. But Keith Shaw might well have been channeling this creature. His statement read, quote, 
After ten last night, a longing for this ring overcame every part of my mind, and the idea of taking his life did not seem in any way an obstacle in obtaining it. This thought, together with the idea of carrying out this operation, ruled supreme in my brain. Last night, with Mr. King out of the California for a while, Keith had gone for a walk to pass the time before he put his plan into action. But he'd fallen asleep in the Katoomba Reserve. When he awoke, he said it was half past three, and quote, I then came back to the house and went along to do as my mind willed. I opened the door of Mr. King's room with absolute pleasure and walked over to the bed and dealt him seven or eight blows with no more conscience than if I had been serving tennis balls. Keith said in his statement that he hadn't been afraid or crazed. Quote, I was fearless of anybody seeing me as I left the door open and took no heed of his cries, which I believe awoke all within hearing. Having caved Mr. King's head in, quote, I then took the ring off his hand, which was then covered with blood, and after doing so, was about to depart with light spirits. It had been at this moment that a voice, as if from the deep, Keith said, came from Mr. Hollingworth, who he described as the rather stout gentleman in the next room. What's your game? the man had said. But Mr. Hollingworth hadn't been game to come into the room. Keith said he'd been inspired by this close call. Quote, He had made another idea come into my then amused mind, an idea to be romantic. So I tied a couple of blankets together and sat on the window for two or three minutes thinking if there was anything else I might do. Keith helped himself to Mr. King's money case, which contained three one-pound notes. Ignoring his improvised rope, put there for romance, he then just jumped from the window and landed fine. As he walked beneath another guest window, he'd expected to hear someone shout down at him. So much noise had he made. But no one did. So he walked to the property of the San Susi guest house about 100 yards away. There, he threw his hammer and the empty money case into the bushes. Heading back to the California, he knew the diamond ring mustn't be found in his possession so he hid it beneath a tuft of ground beside the front gate. All of these admissions, of course, were strongly suggestive of a guilty mind. As Keith entered the room that he shared with Lionel, he'd found his brother talking with their neighbour, Mrs Alexander. Soon after that, Keith said he'd undressed and gone to sleep. In his version, he'd been woken by the noises of guests preparing to go to the Janolan Caves. Keith's statement didn't include his conversation with Arthur Anderson, in which the manager had asked him what he knew and then told him not to go anywhere. Keith's version went this way, quote, Not feeling sleepy, I got up and decided to go for a walk to Echo Point. After going halfway, I began to think about what I had done, so I thought I would go and see my mother before the police took any action. Again, this was a clear statement he knew what he'd done and that it was wrong. Keith also said in his statement that even if the hammer and the ring weren't found, he knew he'd left enough evidence in his room to convict him. Keith hired Mr. Cropley and his motor car. Quote, I was eager for the trip, as I thought I might never get the chance of one again. So, I enjoyed it. 
On the way down to Sydney, Keith got the idea to stop in at the house of a Mrs Hutchinson to ask her advice. For reasons that aren't clear, this woman wouldn't be further identified or ever be called as a witness. But she was apparently the reason that Keith had asked Mr Cropley to drop him near the Summerhill Railway Station. Keith said that Mrs Hutchinson had told him to go to the police at once. Keith had actually done that in a roundabout way, simply by heading home to Paddington. Having made this statement, which the court had now heard, Detective Devlin deposed that he'd next asked Keith if he'd told anyone beside Mrs Hutchinson that he'd attacked Mr King. Keith replied, Yes, I told my brother Lionel. He said he'd also told him where the diamond ring was hidden. Detective Devlin testified that Lionel had initially denied knowing where the ring was and that he'd denied taking it from its hiding spot. But then he'd admitted he'd been lying and he'd showed the police where he'd stashed it in the Paragon Cafe. Detective Devlin also deposed as to what else Lionel had said during their interviews. Initially, he'd said that Keith had taken five half-sovereigns from his dresser. But later, Lionel admitted he'd given his brother money for his escape. This was evidence that he'd aided his brother by helping him and covering for him. Under cross-examination, Detective Devlin said that Keith Shaw had appeared unconcerned after his arrest, and he'd remained this way even when the charge against him was upgraded to murder after Mr King died of his injuries. The detective also told the court that his investigations had revealed that both brothers had been well regarded at the California before the tragedy. This admission amused the accused, the Blue Mountain Echo reporter noting, quote, At every reference to their good character or their courtesy, the twins smiled cheerfully. Keith putting his hands in his waistcoat, la-di-da style, smilingly whispered, bouquets. Next, Detective Downey testified about arresting Keith in Paddington. When he grabbed the accused and told him why he was wanted, Keith had said, quote, I know all about it. The man is dead. I don't know what came over me. I had a turn like it once before. Why had he attacked Mr. King? Keith had told Detective Downey, quote, Ever since I saw King's diamond ring, I wanted it. I feel like two parts, one being quite serious and the other like a cove in a picture show. The public gallery cracked up laughing at the image of Keith being part normal boy and part movie villain, and he laughed right along with them. Detective Downey said that on the way back to Katoomba on the train, the accused had kept on talking about the attack, saying, quote, It's a wonder someone didn't come in. King sang out two or three times, and I never had the door locked. One man sang out, What's your game? But never came in. They're a game lot at the California. This was as condescending and arrogant as it sounded. Keith, who just confessed to using a hammer to batter a sleeping man to death, was criticising the other guests for not being game enough to investigate. Another California guest, Penryn Hugh Robbins, the accountant clerk with the Sydney Morning Herald, testified to say that Mr King had worn a diamond ring. He said that he and Keith had gone into the deceased's room the night before the tragedy. There, they'd had glasses of ale and eaten sandwiches. He detected no animosity. He thought they'd all been friends. 
A clerk from Katoomba department store Mullaney's testified that he'd sold a hammer like the one in evidence on the Saturday before the attack, but he wasn't able to positively identify either of the accused as having been the man who bought it. That closed the evidence for the Crown. Defence counsel Mr McIntosh argued the charges against Lionel Shaw should be dropped. He said Lionel hadn't known about the murder, and thus he couldn't have been an accomplice. As for Keith, well, Mr McIntosh said there was strong evidence that he'd committed the act, the act of a madman. But the accused's sanity or otherwise would be for a higher court to decide. The Crown Prosecutor Mr Bathgate argued that the evidence against Keith was overwhelming. Regarding Lionel, there was a strong prima facie case that he was an accessory before and after the fact. The Blue Mountain Echo reported of Mr Bathgate's closing address, quote, In reviewing the evidence, he laid special stress on the footsteps in the hall, distinctly heard by the witness Hollingworth, also to the fact that Keith locked the door and made his escape through the window. Furthermore, they were both together, fully dressed, immediately after the crime. He claimed that Lionel knew all about the attempted robbery, which resulted in the murder of King, and furthermore, there was no doubting he was an accessory after the fact. He shielded the perpetrator of the murder, denied all knowledge of the crime or of the ring, and later confessed that he had it all the time. Then, the clothes that Keith wore were found packed in Lionel's bag. The coroner was convinced, committing both Shaw brothers to trial in the murder of George King. Until they faced court again, their accommodations would be Long Bay Penitentiary, which had only opened three years previously. If Keith was found guilty of murder, he'd get the death sentence. Lionel might also. But would either of them actually hang? Until recently, the smart money would have been on any death sentence being commuted to life behind bars. But just last December, two men, Frank Franz and Robert Kennedy, who'd been arrested by detectives Devlin and Downey for the murder of a country policeman, went to the gallows in Bathurst Jail. They were the first men to be executed in New South Wales since 1912. One month after Keith and Lionel were remanded to Long Bay, a man named James Wilson was scheduled to be the first man hanged within the walls of this jail. He'd been convicted of murdering a Haymarket cafe owner during a robbery. When a hanging was on the horizon in any prison, a pall was cast over the entire penitentiary. Would the condemned man actually go to the noose, or would the government show mercy? Of course, this life-or-death question had the most mental impact on men who were awaiting their own trials on capital charges and on men waiting to hear if their death sentences were to be carried out. James Wilson became the first man to be hanged in Long Bay Jail on the 31st of May 1917. If Keith and Lionel Shaw needed another reminder of what their fates might be, it came two days before they went to trial. On Saturday the 16th of June, Christian Benzing became the second man to hang at Long Bay paying with his life for the rape and murder of an 11-year-old girl at Rockdale. That was the fourth hanging in six months. The New South Wales executive clearly was not in a forgiving mood. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. On Monday the 18th of June, Keith was in the dock in the Central Criminal Court in Sydney. He'd be tried first, with Mr Justice Pring presiding. As soon as Keith's jury retired, his brother Lionel's case would be heard before a new jury. Keith Shaw pleaded not guilty to murdering George King. He'd be defended by barristers Mr F.S. Boyce and Mr Breckenridge, both instructed by his solicitor Mr H.E. McIntosh. Crown prosecutor Mr Harris set out the case against the accused. Keith Shaw had wanted Mr King's diamond ring and so he'd gone into the room and he'd murdered him to get it. The accused had made careful plans and had taken measures to evade capture afterwards. The question of insanity, Mr Harris said, might be raised by the defence. If so, the onus of proving insanity rested on them. California guest Penryn Robbins did not testify, though he'd been summoned to appear. The Katoomba clerk who'd sold the hammer but couldn't say who he'd sold it to also wasn't called. Otherwise, though, all the witnesses repeated the same evidence they'd given at the Katoomba inquest. When the Crown's case was closed, Keith Shaw said he'd like to make a statement. He entered the witness box with a jaunty air. Keith smiled at friends in the gallery, and he offered the same cheerful countenance to the 12 men of the jury. Keith Shaw spoke with assurance, but there was also an air of flippancy as he said, quote, I know nothing of the crime with which I am charged. They planted me away at Long Bay among a lot of criminals. I learned there that I have the name Rats. One chap out there thinks a man is trying to poison him and that they are trying to put cyanide of potassium in his tea. We go to bed in the middle of the day out there. There are men disguised. I know they are detectives, but it does not trouble me. I only laugh at them. They think that I am mad. They give me a rope, a bit of string and a blanket and they think I am going to do something. They are all mad out there. I have a good time at Long Bay and am getting fat. That's all, Your Honour. Keith Shaw's insanity defence was off to a strong start. But a jury wasn't going to take his weird word salad as proof positive that he'd been out of his head when he'd caved in Mr King's. The defence intended to show hereditary insanity. While newspaper reports at the time offered a bare description of the Shaw's history, Ancestry.com.au records have made it possible to get a better insight into who was who on their family tree. By way of introduction in the court, the defence first called an old man named Edward Pitfield, who was described as a teacher of languages and of music. Ancestry records show that this gent was born in Hobart in 1847, so he was 70 when he testified. This old-timer said that while living in Tasmania back in the day, he'd known the accused's maternal great-grandmother, Margaret McLean. Mr. Pitfield said that she was of an excitable nature and also a spiritualist and that she died insane. 
To prove this, the defence produced a certificate from the new Norfolk Asylum that indeed showed Margaret McLean had died there of chronic disease of the brain on the 22nd of June 1890. This record is actually available via the Library's Tasmania archive, and it shows that Margaret McLean was 82 when she died. So she might have been mad, but she also had a pretty good innings. Her life and her death was the first link in a chain the defence hoped would show insanity passed down and manifested in Keith. The next link was his own mother, Margaret. She'd also been christened Margaret McLean when she was born in Hobart in 1869. She was the daughter to the madwoman's son Robert and to his wife Eliza. Margaret McLean would marry John Sidney Shaw in Paddington in 1891. She gave birth to their first son, Stanley, on the 3rd of June, 1892. Six weeks later, on the 18th of July, the court heard, Margaret was detained in Sydney's Callan Park Insane Asylum. This was described in court as having been related to the birth of her son, making it possible she was suffering from postnatal depression. Margaret remained in hospital until the 24th of May, 1893. When she was discharged, the court heard, she'd made a full recovery and her condition had not recurred. In 1894, she and her husband John had had their second son, Ronald. Three years later, October 1897, Margaret had given birth to her twins, Keith and Lionel. She told the court that Keith had always been a good and kind boy and he'd never given her any trouble. He wouldn't even kill a mouse. About 10 years ago, Margaret said, when Keith was still in short pants, he'd had a fall against a wall and sustained a severe cut to his head. This, she said, was one of three head injuries he'd sustained as a boy. And a few years back, she testified, Keith had been in such a nervous state that he wouldn't sleep without a light burning. Margaret had another sad admission. Her son drank chlorodyne, and he'd consume as much as half a bottle at a time. Chlorodyne was a patent medicine widely used in Australia for a variety of complaints, from diarrhoea and cholera to neuralgia and insomnia. Chlorodyne worked to relieve a variety of conditions because it contained a variety of ingredients, the most potent being opiates, cannabis and chloroform. Addiction was common, so were overdoses. Margaret testified she'd warned her son that taking chlorodyne might kill him. Keith's reply had been, What does it matter? Margaret finished by telling the court that, on the morning of his arrest, Keith had come into the family house, hugged and kissed her and said, I'm so happy. City dentist Cornelius Fitzel testified that he'd employed Keith Shaw two or three years ago in his dental laboratory. Last December, Dr. Fitzel said he'd seen Keith. At this time, the lad had admitted that during his employment in the lab, he'd often soaked a handkerchief in chloroform and inhaled it to the point that he'd become semi-conscious. Keith confessed he'd developed a mania for chloroform and had later started taking chlorodyne. One day, he'd overdosed and had to be driven home in a cab. Dr. Fitzel testified, quote, I told him that he should be more careful or that he would die through it. Keith's reply had been, Well, I've got to die one day. 
Emil Ebenezer Joseph Ford, who'd just become a solicitor, said he'd known Keith in the accused work as a legal clerk. When the lad hadn't been kept busy, Mr. Ford said, he would turn broody. The next witness was Stella Chu. She was a young, single woman, originally from Young, who was now living in Burwood. Stella Chu wasn't the sort of name you'd forget in a hurry. Some of those in court might even have remembered reading it in March 1914 when a mail train crashed into a goods train at Exeter in the Southern Highlands. In this catastrophe, passenger carriages had telescoped into each other. 14 people were killed and another 18 injured. It was then the worst railway disaster in New South Wales's history. Stella Chu had survived the carnage. She'd told newspapers about having to climb over dead people to escape her crushed carriage. Now Stella was having her words recorded by journalists again in relation to another tragedy. That was because late in 1916, she'd encountered Keith Shaw. Even though Stella was a decade older than he was, and they'd met only once, the lad had fallen in love with her. On the 29th of November 1916, Stella was surprised to receive a letter from him. This was read to the court, and it included, quote, Stella dear, I'm going to let you in on a secret, which I hope you will keep for my sake. I cried for you last night, and as I did so, the skies seemed to accompany me. You made me much happier that night, for I might tell you that I have always wanted to die and get out of this place. Stella had written some sort of reply to Keith, though what this contained wasn't revealed. Quite likely, Stella was just being polite, pitying the boy and trying to let him down gently. In any case, Keith took encouragement from her response and wrote a second letter. This one was decorated with at least 14 love hearts he'd drawn in purple ink. Keith wrote, I was very pleased to get an answer to my special edition of affection. I hope you will think of me occasionally and will not leave me out of your morning and evening prayers, although I do not need praying for. I feel very jealous when I see any two together, and so I hate all men. If you knew me, you would be more than proud to receive a manuscript of this kind. I could go on telling you of my strange and perhaps weird nature, but time is going. Just to ensure that Stella understood the intensity of his passion, Keith had drawn a bigger heart pierced by an arrow in the bottom left-hand corner of the page. He'd also added a postscript, quote, When I want to take the burden of the secrecy off my mind, I do so to prevent haze generating around my brain. Stella told the court that, taken together, the letters had made him seem mentally deranged. More so because they barely knew each other. After the murder, Stella had sent these letters to Keith's mother, saying she should pass them on to Dr Chisholm Ross, one of New South Wales's leading psychiatrists. An old schoolmate of Keith's, Gordon Stanley Davidson, who was now working as a dental mechanic, told the court that he knew the accused well. Keith, he said, had always had peculiar ideas. Keith had once told him he'd tried to commit suicide, but had been saved because, quote, God had been good to him. Gordon told the court during one conversation, Keith said that if he jumped off a cliff, God would, at the moment of his death, 
return him to life, probably as a dog. Keith had told this witness, as the Blue Mountain Echo reported, quote, He believed there was a god, but said he could not understand who made him. There was a leading star in the sky, he said, which seemed to guide him, and this he called God, and God was good to him. If the defence witnesses were to be believed, Keith had been born of a mad bloodline. He'd become a drug-addicted and delusional lovesick young lad whose strange ideas about religion had him believing in a god star that guided him and in suicidal reincarnation. But did all of this actually make him insane? And insane at the time that he killed George King? Macquarie Street psychiatrist Dr Campbell took the stand next. He testified that he'd examined Keith Shaw in Long Bay Jail on the 5th of June. Dr. Campbell told the court that, taking into account the family history and what he'd learned during their interviews, he'd concluded the accused was insane. Dr. Campbell had asked Keith why he took chlorodyne, and Keith had told him it was to relieve feelings of morbidity. The lad had also said that his life and his mind and his actions weren't his own. Keith said he was under the control of a goddess. Not just any goddess, but a goddess who lived in the brightest star up in the heavens. Keith said this goddess could direct him to do anything, murder and suicide included, and he would be utterly unable to resist her commands. Keith told Dr. Campbell he had no knowledge of what had happened in the room at the California. But if the goddess had ordered him to do something, then it couldn't be a crime. Quote, It must have been right. If I had not done it, it would have been wrong. During their discussions, Keith had said to Dr. Campbell that he pitied a prisoner in a nearby cell because this man felt remorse for his crimes. Keith said he had no such feelings because he'd always done the right thing. Keith had also said that he was subject to impulsive acts. Dr. Campbell said that all of this, taken with the absence of motive, went in Keith's favour. Mr. Justice Pring, however, wanted some clarification. He said to Dr. Campbell, You say there was no motive. Don't you know he wanted to get the diamond ring? Dr. Campbell replied, I consider it a small motive to impel him to kill a man. Dr. Campbell went on to say that he believed that Keith genuinely believed the goddess controlled him and had forced him to kill Mr. King without him even knowing he was doing it. Except, of course, the accused had written a voluntary statement saying he knew what he'd done. The Crown Prosecutor, Mr. Harris, raised this, asking Dr. Campbell, quote, Even though the goddess at one time must have forced him to remember, you still believe in the reality of the goddess? Dr. Campbell answered, yes. The defence barrister, Mr. Boyce, asked the doctor about the diamond ring. Quote, Does the alleged small motive for the murder help you in any way? Dr. Campbell, yes, I thought that he was not seized with the gravity of the position. Mr. Boyce asked, in making these statements, did accused know who you were? The doctor replied, I think he did. Mr. Justice Pring then asked, do you think that he knew what he was doing on the morning of the crime? Dr. Campbell, I do not think that he did. Mr. Justice Pring, how do you account for this sentence in his confession? 
I began to feel I had done something wrong and knew that there was enough evidence in the room to convict me. Dr. Campbell said again, I do not think he knew what he was doing. Mr. Justice Pring, this statement was written out by the accused about nine hours after the crime. Do you still say you think he did not know he was doing a wrongful act? Dr. Campbell, that is only my opinion. Mr. Justice Pring, do you still say it? Dr. Campbell, can I say that I formed my... Mr. Justice Pring cut him off. Will you answer my question? Do you still say that he did not know he was doing a wrongful act? I want your answer to my question. Dr. Campbell, I will say that I do not think he fully understood or appreciated what he had done. His Honour said he wouldn't ask Dr. Campbell any further questions, which seemed to be his way of saying he still hadn't received a satisfactory answer. Dr. Chisholm Ross, who'd been treating mental patients in public and private practice for more than 30 years, said he'd seen the accused twice at Long Bay Jail. He'd found Keith to be untrustworthy, but said he thought this was on account of his mental condition. Dr. Chisholm Ross testified he didn't think the accused was fully responsible for himself, and that he didn't realise the seriousness of what he'd done. Dr. Palmer the government medical officer, began the Crown's rebuttal to these claims made by the defence's medical experts. Dr Palmer said he'd seen Keith three times. On the morning of his arrest, he said the lad had seemed quite clear of mind. Keith had told Dr Palmer he'd stolen the ring so he could flash it about. He'd said he was sorry for what he'd done, though he barely realised it as a reality. While this might have suggested dissociation... Keith had also made no mention of any goddess telling him what to do or what to remember and what to forget. When Dr Palmer next examined Keith on the 2nd of May in Long Bay, the accused had provided a complete recollection of the crime. But the next time Dr Palmer saw him, Keith claimed he didn't remember their 2nd of May conversation at all and he didn't have any memory of the murder. Dr. Palmer had examined Keith's head and found only superficial scarring that, in his opinion, didn't indicate any previous brain injuries. Cross-examined by Mr. Boyce, the defence counsel, Dr. Palmer said he didn't believe Keith was mentally deficient, but he was below average physically. Dr. Palmer said he also believed that Keith lacked control. Mr. Boyce asked, Did he impress you that he was insane? Dr. Palmer replied, No. On the first occasion, he seemed all right. On the second occasion, I thought he was trying to impress me that he was of unsound mind. Another medical practitioner, Dr. Andrew Davidson, also gave evidence in rebuttal. He said the accused was flighty, but otherwise mentally sound. The fact of a family history of insanity didn't necessarily mean that Keith had suffered or would suffer the same fate. Before he left the witness box, in reply to a question, Dr. Davidson told the court that pretending to be mad was a very difficult thing to carry off successfully. Was that what Keith Shaw was trying to do? The medical experts were split two against two. As soon as closing arguments had been made and Mr. Justice Pring had summed up, it'd be up to a jury of 12 ordinary men to decide decide if the accused was suffering actual insanity or if he was playing up his grandiose melancholy. 
decide if Keith Shaw was helplessly mad or if Keith Shaw was simply bad. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part two of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, Bloody Murder in the Blue Mountains. Part three will be released soon. Or check it out now by becoming a subscriber to Forgotten Australia Plus on Apple or by becoming a Patreon supporter. Links are in your show notes. As always, thanks for listening. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.